At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, for me, you know, I, I had slept in my office most of my years in Congress uh, in, a, in an air mattress, you know, that I kept under the couch in my office. Uh, it wasn't a very glamorous life. And I would go down and do P90X. I work out with other members of Congress like Paul Ryan and others, you know, at 630 every morning. And then I go shower in the members of Congress gym, you know, and then I, I start my day and every day started with an eight o'clock meeting. But when I was trying to be a, you know, live that purpose-driven life that that I, I think is the way to go to be successful in life. When you have a purpose, you have meaning. And my meaning was to serve the 700,000 people I represented, to serve the, the 19 million American veterans out there, uh, and to serve our country, to move us in the right direction. So to, for me to author things like the post 9 GI Bill and the, the people of Don't Ask, Don't Tell were pretty awesome experiences to get that over the finish line to really make a difference that, that is in effect even today. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. In terms of diversity and background of experiences, my guest today really rivals anyone I've had on the show so far. And I'm talking about Patrick Murphy, the former Pennsylvania congressman who was the first 9-11 veteran that was elected to Congress. I ran into Patrick recently at an event in DC and he was gracious enough to accept an invitation to join the podcast and really cover a bunch of things that are near and dear to him right now. As many of you may know, he also served as the Secretary of the Army and has really been an outspoken advocate for veterans, especially getting into uh, the entrepreneur environment but something else that Patrick's really jumped into recently is the issue we have around talent in cybersecurity. He's had a lot of success in pairing up veterans with previous roles, and he's kind of moved that into the cybersecurity realm, where we've looked at upskilling and training veterans to, to fill in some of these cybersecurity roles that are absolutely needed. We're going to talk about this initiative a little bit in the podcast, as well as dig into his background a little bit, including the the time he got to actually try a case in the Iraq judicial system, which is an incredible experience. I'm excited to kind of open that up with Patrick, but um, there's a number of things we're going to talk about today, and I'm excited to jump into this episode. So Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Brian, it's great to be on with you. This is going to be one of those episodes that honestly could go in so many different directions. So 
I hope our listeners can hold on because your background is so, I mean, diverse is an understatement and there's so much that we can, we can cover today, but I want to start with what really is what I've kind of derived as a common thread across your life, which is service. And I really am, am curious, how is service instilled in you? Is it something your parents taught you or modeled for you? Or what really made you prioritize this in your life and in your career? Yeah. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. You know, the Bible talks about having a servant's heart. And uh, my parents uh, really modeled that for my brother, sister, and I. Uh, my, my father was a Navy veteran and served for 22 years as a Philadelphia police officer. Uh, and then my mother served our church. Uh, she was a Michael Hart of Mary Nunn. Uh, luckily for me, Brian, she left the convent um, and then met my father. Uh, of course, I, I'll jokingly say she dumped Jesus for Jack Murphy. Uh, she does not like <laughs> it when I say that. But uh, when she left the convent, you know, she, uh, you know, she worked outside the home. Uh, we grew up in a very blue collar area in Philadelphia in a row house. Uh, so we had that row house mentality about taking care of people on our step in our neighborhood uh, in our country. And so my brother, sister, and I all went into public service. My sister decades is a public school teacher. Uh, my brother in, in the Air Force with two post-9-11 deployments, and then uh, he serves in local government. Uh, and then, as you know, you know, I, I served, had the honor of serving as an All-American with the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, teaching at West Point, and then in Congress, and then the Pentagon. So I've been very, very blessed and uh, just want to give back and, and try to make this world a better place. That's fantastic. And and now talking about giving back, you have two kids of your own. What has what has being a dad taught you about life, about yourself, just taught you in general? Well, sometimes I have patience. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was taking my 13-year-old and 16-year-old to a to a party yesterday and um, you know, my I had a a, a work engagement that ran late. Uh, I'm rushing to go get them, take them to the party. Uh, you know, they're saying, Dad, where are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm in route, this round late. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you do the best you can. And I'm very active in their lives. And and I'm very, very blessed that Maggie Murphy and Jack are, are two great kids. And, um, you know, if they could be, um, you know, half as good as, as their cousins and, and their parents and stuff like that, uh, we're, we're in good shape. So, uh just being a dad has been probably, to be honest with you, Brian, the most important job I've ever had in my life. And I really try to do uh, a good job with it. You know, reading books, you know, before Maggie was even born about, you know, what to expect when you're expecting, you know, how to deal with the terrible twos, how to deal, you know, now it's Maggie's 16 and she's a sophomore and looking at colleges. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, push them appropriately. Uh, but also be there for them uh, and, you know, have a shoulder to cry on when need be or, or you know, push them, you know, when they need to be pushed in, in a constructive way. Um, I, I'm very quick to, to tell them. I, I do encourage them to, to think about going in the military. Uh, so far, Maggie says no and Jack says maybe. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do want them and, and make it a point that they do have to serve in some capacity. Uh, they have to serve our community our church, our country, uh, by being good citizens. And that starts, you know, at their age. It's not that they can't wait till they're 18. The thing that I've struggled with is when you take a look at, um, so I, I have three kids of my own. And the thing that I struggle with the most is, is 
what you kind of touched on was kind of when when to push when they need pushing and when is when is too early to push when it how much is too much have you have you struggled with that because it's something honestly on a daily basis that goes through my head yeah you know and you know i think COVID took everyone you know made everyone reevaluate uh life etc and you know, my son, I'm a, I'm a former college hockey player. In fact, I still play men's league hockey. I'm the oldest one on the, on the team, uh, at age 49. But I, uh, you know, I have my son out there on the ice, uh, at age three and he's been on, he's been on the ice for two, three, sometimes four or five days a week. Um, always loved it, did well, had a great team, but during COVID said that I don't want to play hockey anymore, you know, after almost, uh, nine years and, you know, he had to finish out the season. But, you know, his love is basketball. So, you know, I was at basketball practice with him last night. Uh, and um, to me, you know, I think he is extremely talented in hockey. Uh, but he's working hard at basketball. And if that's his passion, I got to let him, you know, run with what he wants to do. Uh, my daughter was a competitive dancer. Now she's in volleyball. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I try to go to all their events, their matches, and, um, you know, ask about, you know, how their day is you know if you say how's your day it's always like fine good whatever you know so i have to i'm sure you have to do the same thing brian sometimes kids aren't as emotive or descriptive as you like so i have to say well, what was your favorite part of your day or what did yeah, you, you got to probe a little bit like you know you have to actually ask very focused and directed questions otherwise you'll get a vanilla answer so uh you know that those are little things i try to do and then you know i try to meet them where they are brian to be honest with you like you know i i let them listen to the music that they want to listen to in, in a sense it can't be too graphic but um and and i try to learn from them and you know it's really try to make it about them so they want to make it you know make it as comfortable as possible that they could share uh frankly my daughter you know she's 16 so she's three years older than my son jack but she probably shares more than my son does but you know i don't i don't push it i just i'm there when they want to talk i try to ask questions uh, but sometimes just taking them and their, and their friends to the mall or to a party or to at a school event is the best I could do. And, and again, I, I love that aspect of our relationship as they get older. The thing that you mentioned about your son and hockey, it's funny, we're, my wife and I are going through the same situation uh, again with our oldest, Elias. He He's a great swimmer, has a lot of talent, and just he's just decided that he doesn't want to swim anymore, but I, something you said in there kind of resonated with me because we said the exact same thing. You're going to finish the season, right? You're going to, you're going to see your responsibility through to the end. And I think it's a good learning opportunity that, yeah, you can make a decision, but at the end of the day, you also have to own the decisions that you've made previously and see those responsibilities through. So I think that's certainly a good lesson that I think he's learning. And it was, it was nice to hear you kind of feeling the same way around that situation. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and I appreciate, you know, he's saying they have to own their decision, their previous decision, because it is about responsibility. And, and I, I'm always here, you know, with the kids, you know, even if you don't want to, I mean, you got to go to practice, you got to go to games. Um, and, and frankly, you got to go to school, right? So it's like, hey, you got to, you got to manage it. And, and by managing it, by learning through it, even when it's stressful, uh, it helps you tackle more challenges as they come, you know, into your, into your life. So I, I want to jump back a little bit and kind of continue with that thread of service. Um, you mentioned that you served in the military, uh, and I'm curious what your decision was. So you're, you're attending college, you make the decision to enroll in ROTC, and I'm guessing at, at this point 
you must have known that you wanted to have a career in, in law, right? Because that's certainly a path that, that you chose. So why the decision to join ROTC and ultimately commission in the Army, knowing that kind of law was going to be your career path? Yeah, well, Brian, I, I joined at 19 the Army through ROTC my sophomore year, and my roommate did. I didn't know anything about the Army ROTC program or how to become an officer. Um, and so, you know, when I you know, saw these, you know, other college students, you know, recalling off the side of the building. So I was, you know, my roommate said, Hey, you know what they're doing? And, you know, we start talking about it and seeing about it and just learning about, you know, you take a military science class, you don't have to commit to the army. And, you know, but we, we took that class and, you know, we did field training exercises and military exercises. And, you know, we, we both kind of fell in love with it. And then we both went away that summer and the basic camp at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and we both earned two year scholarships and, and, you know, two years later, we were, you know, commissioned as army officers. It was pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, to me, the army has changed my life. It's been this positive force for good, uh, teaching me about leadership and discipline and selfless service. And, and so, uh, I, I loved it and I still love it to this day. That's why I try to give back, uh, to our army and to our military as a whole. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm calling you in here from, you know, Wharton Business School, one of the best business schools in the world, uh, if not the best, um, because, you know, 11% of our incoming class are, are veterans uh, or, or former government. And it's folks that uh, they want to give back. They want to be what we call veterpreneurs, veteran entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I've invested in over 60 vets and the start of their companies. Uh, some are doing phenomenally well. Some are not. Uh, around anymore, but you know the reality of it is, is uh, of the post 9/11 generation, it's only it's less than five percent that start their own small business. Uh, World War II, it was almost half start their own business, uh, and those World War II generation, the greatest generation, not only did they win incredible, incredible World War II, uh, but they came back and and totally, you know developed our country to the economic powerhouse that it is by creating companies like Nike that was started by Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight, um, companies like Walmart started by Army veteran Sam Walton, um, companies like Ralph Lauren, uh, otherwise known as Polo, you know, he was an Army veteran. Uh, and then another generation of folks like uh, Fred Smith who started FedEx. So, you know, to me, it's a passion project that I, I try to solve problems in my life to make this world a better place. And the way I serve is to invest in veterans uh, that I can get behind and believe in. Uh, one of them happens to be one of my students right now, Walt Frazier. Well, I'm sorry, Wyatt Frazier. Wyatt, uh, and he doesn't mind me sharing this, you know, just started his own business called uh, Swinergy. And and he's in my class. I just had him two hours ago. And, uh, you know, he is filled with more enthusiasm and him and a fellow West Point, um, you know, graduate or, or starting this company. And I disagreed to, you know, serve on the board of advisors and I'm helping them out. And, and to me, you know, I get real enjoyment out of seeing people, you know, follow their dreams. And whether that's a political public service or in business, uh, we need more veterans and leadership roles in our country. I love that. And, and if kind of, as you were talking, one of the things that popped in my head is, I mean, you're, you're giving back and I, I love the term vetrepreneur. Um, You've obviously worked with, or at least seen, and been exposed to 
multiple different businesses, I'm sure, and veterans that have looked to start those businesses. Can you put your finger on maybe the things, whether they're tangible or intangible, that that really have driven success or led to maybe not having as much, I don't want to say failure, but not having as much success as perhaps they thought they were going to have when they set out? Yeah, well, I think first off, everyone's going to have setbacks. I mean, even even me, I mean, I could, I could go on and on about some of my setbacks, but every setback is not a failure as long as you're learning from it uh, and, and don't make the same mistake or, you know, it puts you in a different direction. And, and journeys are never going to be a straight line A to B. It never, ever, ever. So even some of the most greatest, the greatest American leaders in history, whether it's George Washington or, or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or George Bush, you know, the last three I just mentioned, they all ran for Congress and lost. Um, and so, you know, and then it became the president of the United States someday. So it's one of those things, you know, you have to learn from mistakes and, and really uh, wicked smart folks will learn from other people's mistakes, right? So... You know, every day I, I read things about leadership and, and frankly, you know, even today I was teaching my class about um, about pivoting and pivoting is not getting rid of your, you know, your values, your fundamental beliefs, but it is, you know, just re just pivoting in a different direction. And I gave the example of Netflix. Netflix is wildly successful company started by a guy, Reed Hastings. Well, Reed, you know, start by sending DVDs to people's homes. Why? Because he rented Apollo 13, a blockbuster. Uh, he turned the movie in too late. He got fined $40 and he was pissed off. So Brian, he, he started Netflix. And so again, he started sending uh, DVDs to people's homes. And then he said, hey, he switched gears. He pivoted. And, and then it was, you know, online. And, and now we know his Netflix at home. Well, that was a pivot. It didn't get rid of his fundamental core beliefs and his value proposition, which was, I want to give people access to movies at home. And that's what Netflix is. And whether it's Starbucks or other companies, you know, they do all pivot and they learn from mistakes or challenges that they faced. So you brought up a couple generations, um, greatest generation, but the, the, the one that I think a lot of us that are listening can probably really resonate with is that 9-11 generation. And, and I mentioned that you were in college, you, you, uh, signed up for ROTC and, um, you went through, you co completed law school and went on active duty in 2000, but then in, in 2001, obviously nine 11 happened. And when it did happen, you volunteered for overseas deployment. And I know everyone in the military, especially at that time has their own feeling around nine 11, but I'm curious to know what did that day mean to you specifically? Well, I will never forget it. It was, it was yesterday. You know, Brian, I had just taken a job teaching at West Point, uh, which was an incredible honor for me, for a blue-collar kid from Philadelphia to go to age 17 uh, at full-time community college student, uh, to become an Army officer within four years, to then, within 10 years, teaching at West Point, uh, you know, at age 27, teaching constitutional military law. I was there at Thayer Hall that day. Uh, and I was in class when the first plane hit and I walked out of class and you could tell there was something in the hallways, there was something going on. Uh, it w wasn't clear, you know, be you know, beside being 45 miles north of where the attack happened. Um, you know, and I remember, uh, soon after, obviously, you know, the second tower and the Pentagon and, you know, seeing, you know, cadets on payphones calling their, 
I remember one cadet calling his father saying, Dad, I heard the Pentagon was attacked, you know, was hit. Are you okay? You know, answer your call, enter your phone. Um, it was very emotional. Uh, and Brian, for me, you know, I joined the Army, you know, at that point, it was, uh, you know, eight years earlier. I had been through airborne school, air assault school. I was getting ready to go to ranger school. Uh, and I marched into my commander's office and said, hey, sir, uh, I want to get in the fight. Uh, you know, I know I gave you a commitment to teach you at West Point, but you got to let me get in the fight. And um, a few months later, I, I went and deployed uh, and served under his classmate, uh, General Petraeus. And our ground forces commander at that time was a colonel by the name of Mark Milley, who's now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And, and General Milley and I had an opportunity to, to lead the Army at the same time together. And, and he's been a great partner and a good friend. So, you know, I, I've been very blessed. Uh, but I will tell you that was a defining moment uh, in our country's history. And, you know, for me to answer the call and, and do two deployments, my brother doing two, uh, and now to see the longest wars of American history come to an end, which is a positive thing, but to make sure that we have the next generation of warriors stepping up, be willing to wear the cloth of our country and take that oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So, I mean, we talked to obviously, and, and it's been not only a common thread in your background, but I think it's a, just a common thread through this podcast episode around service. And I think that's a really good example of you finding a way to take your background and, and bring it into a meaningful um, situation, right? So 9-11 spring you to go on a deployment. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about your background, because um, obviously you did a number of things during your time in the army, but something I, I wanted to touch on and really ask you about was you supported the prosecution of a high level Iraqi insurgent and purely out of curiosity, I'm really, I'm really looking to understand what was it like trying a case in the Iraqi justice system, especially around that time? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. We take, we have the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, and we have core fundamental beliefs that are embedded and enunciated in our constitution. The constitution is our blueprint of our country. But one of those principles is the rule of law, that no one is above the law. Uh, that's actually a foreign concept in a lot of countries, including it was a foreign concept in Iraq, where they wouldn't arrest political leaders or religious leaders. They would let them get away with murder, literally. Uh, and when we went in with the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, we made it very clear that um, there's new sheriff in town and that it was their country, but we're there to partner with them, but to put them in the right direction. And when they had religious leaders, um, like two, two different shakes that I, that I prosecuted in the Supreme Court of Iraq, which is called the Central Criminal Court of Iraq, uh, we prosecuted them, you know, that we don't have jurisdiction under them under what's called the UCMJ, uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, but we did have jurisdiction over them with the 1969 Iraqi criminal code. And so Brian, yes, did I ever learn about the Iraqi criminal code and in law school or, you know, at West Point? No. Uh, but I was there and the military teaches to take initiative. Uh, and, you know, when we had, um, a religious leader who was killing their fellow Iraqis, uh, threatening to kill Americans, stealing generators off of their fellow citizens and standing behind um, the Quran and saying, well, I'm a religious leader, I'm above the law. Uh, we made clear that that wasn't the case anymore. And we prosecuted him and, and 
uh, and brought him to justice. Uh, so for me, you know, one of the reasons why those paratroopers and I that we served um, and, and earned things like the presidential unit citation is because we, you know, we would conduct combat operations at night, but during the day we were truly, generally trying to help rebuild uh, the area, whether it was the justice system or the community by doing these initiatives. And uh, that was something that, you know, I had death threats about and, and uh, you know, we got mortared about and, and fired on uh, with small arm fire. But to me, it was, uh, it was so worth it uh, to stand up uh, in a righteous cause like the rule of law. Yeah, I, I can imagine there was there had to be some backlash. I mean, especially if there's a religious leader, somebody standing behind something that seemingly most people in Iraq are are behind, and and you're bringing them to justice in that way. I can imagine that not only was difficult because you're going against against the tide, but that the, the the backlash had to be really tough to deal with. Yeah, and Brian, it's interesting to talk about the backlash. It was a, it was a little bit of a foreign concept. In fact. When we turned over the charge sheet in Arabic to the local police department, they wouldn't prosecute them because they said, well, we can't. They're religious leaders. We kept walking through like, no, you can. And we had to go through uh, and train up the, a special Iraqi police force that, that they bring them. But when we did that, there was there was protests. There were several hundred Iraqis in the center of Baghdad that shut down the street, uh, six-lane highway about the size of I-95, um, and uh, you know, protesting what we did. Uh, but we pushed him back. Uh, our commanding general at the time was a guy, Marty Dempsey, who was commanding 1st Armored Division. But in a very respectful way, we let them protest. But we, we pushed them back. And, and, you know, they weren't letting things like ambulances go by. Uh, and we kept saying to them, hey, you got to let the ambulance go by. Or this is life or death by someone. And they're like, if it's Allah's will. Uh, and we finally had to say, hey, listen, we're responsible here. Um, and, you know, we did what we can. Uh, and sometimes you make decisions that are not politically popular, but you do it in the right way, and then it's important to communicate those decisions. So I remember being on Iraqi television, talking to people, walking through the charge sheet. Now, again, I spoke a little bit of Arabic at the time, but not fluent. So I had an interpreter there, you know, on national television to the Iraqi people, letting them know why we took out um, this religious leader, the charges, the, some of the witnesses, um, and you know, that he was going to have his day in court. Um, and uh, to me, uh, that was one of the reasons why those crowds dissipated and people understood uh, that we were there to do the right thing, uh, not just to exert our power. So so coming out of those deployments, you were, you were actually the first post-war, post-9-11 war veteran to serve in Congress. And Obviously, again, we've we've talked about service running through, but is is that something that you always wanted to do, even when you were going into law school? Because I know a lot of people that obviously serve in politics have a, a legal degree or, or have a law background, and that's something they've wanted to do. But is this something that you felt coming out of your your military service you wanted to do, or is this something that really your entire life you've you've wanted to serve in this type of political capacity? Yeah, I wouldn't say I, I never really thought I would get in the political public service, to be honest with you, Brian. But, you know, I did grow up in a home that had pictures on the wall of Pope John Paul II and President John F. Kennedy. So it wasn't a complete foreign concept. Uh, I wasn't a political science major, though, but you know, I did follow it. Uh, I did get a chance, though, Brian. I, I had I was a senior in high school. I'm sorry, senior in college 
uh, at King's College. It's a small Catholic college in Wilkes-Barre. In fact, when I first joined the Army ROTC program, uh, there was only three of us in the ROTC program, uh, my roommate, me, and, and an upperclassman. Um, but they evacuated the city of Wilkes-Barre after some flooding that unfortunately killed six people. And uh, I had led a, the city was asking for folks to help go sandbag uh, by the river. Uh, and I led that effort. And months later, uh, they were going to rebuild the dike that broke during that tragic storm. And, and um, they asked me to introduce the President of the United States at the time. And I, and I got a chance to do it in front of over 5,000 folks. Uh, and, and that was the first time I saw my father, who was in the audience with my mom, uh, cry with a sense of pride uh, that they, he saw his son up there um, you know, uh, you know, with the president of the United States and, and that was a powerful moment. And I had a lot of folks in the press ask me at that time, Hey, Patrick, you know, are you going to follow, follow the president's footsteps? You're going to run for Congress? You're going to do this? And I was like, I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going in the military. I'm about to be commissioned as an army officer. I'm going to go lead men and women. And, and I'm like, I'm not even registered either party. I was uh, independent. And, um, so, uh, you know, I, I had a little bit of, uh, you know, taste of it. I never worked a campaign or anything, but then, uh, you know, I, I had eventually, you know, when I served in Iraq, uh, we had lost 19 men in, in our combat brigade. Uh, and at that same time that was going on, they were trying to cut our combat pay in Congress. And I remember being just so pissed off about Congress saying, well, the war's over, mission's accomplished. I'm like, hey, I just lost 19 brothers, man, in the last few months. And, um, you know, I decided, I, I saw that we had the least amount of veterans serving in Congress in the 21st century and realized that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do something about it. And, you know, I had $322 in my bank account. I, I declared for Congress. Uh, we were out spent over $3 million, but we won uh, by 0.6%, by 1,518 votes of the quarter million that were cast. Uh, and then we tried to make every day count when we had the opportunity to serve the people of the 1st District of Pennsylvania. When you got to Congress, what was something that kind of surprised you that maybe was either more challenging than you expected or maybe easier than you expected? But I mean, obviously to the folks listening, I mean, to have the experience of, of being a congressman is, is going to be less than, uh, it's going to be a fraction of a percent of, of Americans. So I'm curious to know, you arrived and, and what was that experience like? Well, you know, it was... I learned right away it's it's it really is a rich person's game to be honest with you brian i mean it's it's most members of congress are millionaires uh, i was one of the t 10 least well most least wealthy members of congress um because i had served in the army and, and you know i remember being a lieutenant very proud that i made twenty seven thousand five hundred dollars a year um uh, and then you know to, to realize that you know you have a home in dc and a home back at home i i couldn't afford to have two homes. I, I, I'm still paying my mortgage. I'm still paying my college loans off because I had only a two-year college scholarship. So, you know, for me, you know, I, I had slept in my office um, most of my years in Congress uh, in, a, in an air mattress, you know, that I kept under the couch in my office. Uh, it wasn't a very glamorous life. And I would go down and do P90X. I work out with other members of Congress like Paul Ryan and others, you know, at 6.30 every morning. And I go shower in the members of Congress gym, you know, and then I, I start my day and every day started with an eight o'clock meeting, but you know, cause I had been up for, you know, to read the paper and read my briefs the night before and, and, you know, to get a workout in and 
when I was trying to be a, you know, live that purpose-driven life that that I, I think is the way to go to be successful in life. When you have a purpose, you have meaning. And my meaning was to serve the 700,000 people I represented, uh, to to serve the, the 19 million American veterans out there, uh, and to serve our country, to move us in the right direction. So to, for me to author things like the post-9-11 GI Bill and the the people have done Aston Hotel were pretty awesome experiences to get that over the finish line to really make a difference that, that is in effect even today. So who were some of your mentors in Congress? And and I, I wanted to ask you this because I, I saw a photo of you and Senator John McCain. And I can imagine, especially with his military background, regardless of partisanship, he had to be somebody you looked up to and, and tried to engage with as much and learn as much as you possibly could. But um, who were some of the people that you really tried to get close to and, and you really considered mentors in that space? Well, first it had to be, uh, frankly, you know, Jack Murtha. Jack Murtha was one of the first Vietnam veterans elected to Congress. And he represented Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He was a Marine. He was the chair of Defense Corporations. Uh, so, you know, I got a chance to serve with him, uh, which was pretty awesome, an awesome experience. Uh, but I, I, I will tell you, you know, I, I even had roommates. I like one of my best friends in Congress was was Tim Walls. And, and Tim Walls, um, when I first got to Washington, I, I did have a little dinky apartment with him uh, before I moved in. My I just moved. I did that for a year. And then the last three years I moved in my office. But, you know, he was a command sergeant major in the Army uh, and he was a part of the Minnesota National Guard. He got activated after 9-11. And, he was a high school football coach and, um, and Tim Walls is now the governor of Minnesota, you know, but, you know, I, I saw how he lived his life, you know, a purpose driven life, having a servant's heart. He was in it for the right reasons. Uh, and so whether it was him or, or people like John McCain, who, even if you disagree with him politically, you know, you always knew he had the country's best interest at heart. And, and to me, there are the folks that I looked up to that I want to try and emulate. Uh, and make them proud of my efforts when I had the opportunity to serve our great nation. Not to make light of of some of the great kind of policies you were part of, but um, I do want to draw attention to one. It, it happened, and, and as soon as I tell you the date, I'm guessing you're going to know immediately. It happened on February 13th, 2008. And you were the only member of the House to vote against a resolution congratulating the New York Giants for the team's victory in the Super Bowl. And, and I love your justification. You said as a, a former 700-level security guard and lifelong Eagles fan, you just couldn't in good conscience vote for the New York Giants. The reason why I love this was actually what you said after that. The only thing worse would have been a resolution honoring the Dallas Cowboys. And I, I, I'm a massive Redskins if you're a Commanders fan. Um, see, seeing this brought a huge smile to my face, Patrick. I got to be honest with you. Yeah, well, listen, I, I, to me, it's always, you got to vote your conscience, Brian. You got to vote your conscience. <laughs> so, um, you know, people were like, man, that was brilliant. I became the unofficial uh, congressman for the Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio. Uh, I was on it the next day. Uh, but to me, it was, you know, it wasn't, it was just, it was a yes or no vote. And, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a diehard Eagles fan. Uh, and uh, I don't have hate in my heart for any team, uh, but I, I couldn't, couldn't vote for another team, you know, and, um, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. And, uh, you know, to me, it was, 
it was a it was a cool experience uh and uh even the owners of the giants who have become my friends a little bit uh i i they appreciate uh my loyalty to my hometown teams here in philadelphia and uh they understood what i had to do uh and what i did uh but you know we could all agree that nobody really likes the dallas cowboys Oh, I think that's that's unanimous. And you, you'll appreciate this. Um, even though we live in the D.C. area, uh, my nine-year-old is still a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And it breaks my heart every time. That makes my heart smile. Well, yeah. I will tell you a quick day. You know, my, I told you my first year in Congress, before I moved to my you know, air mattress in my office, uh, my roommate was Tim Walls, the governor of Minnesota. His oldest son, Gus, uh, we used to call him Gus the Bus, uh, he's an Eagles fan too, because I used to tell Gus, you know, he's a little guy, he's only like six, and I said, Gus, you gotta, you gotta be an Eagles fan, man. The Eagles, it's the American Eagle, is our is our symbol of our team, and that's the symbol of America. So if you love America, you gotta love the Philadelphia Eagles, and and he became an Eagles fan. Uh, so uh, I I joked with joked with them, but you know, kids are the best, and, and you know, I think sports really does a good job of bringing people together in a lighthearted way. Uh, you compete. You, you fight on the fields of friendly, friendly uh, strife, uh, but it's really about you know doing the right thing and coming together uh, on behalf of a cause. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of the things you're working on right now. And I know you have a really strong focus on on cybersecurity. And one of the reasons it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier is supporting veterans. Right, I was just at the the IT modernization talks um, where I heard you you talk about, and I think this doesn't surprise anybody. And I know I've been very aware of this: the massive talent gap that exists within the cybersecurity field, which is absolutely a national security issue. But you're working to try to close that gap, and one of the things you're doing is looking at veterans to be to be part of that answer. So do you want to tell the the listeners a little bit about kind of what, what you're doing around, around this type of initiative? Yeah. Th- thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. You know, I'm chairing a national movement called Task Force Cyber and Task Force Movement, but you know, this is to get veterans, uh, more veterans involved in cybersecurity. Uh, as you know, uh, we're over th- 40,000 cybersecurity professionals short just in the federal government and about 700,000 short in the private sector. And so this is, is a national security issue. When we have, um, frankly, foreign entities and foreign uh, actors who are trying to break into the Pentagon, break into our corporations, our small businesses, break into our critical infrastructure uh, and harm our families. So, um, you know, you, you saw Russia, you know, tinker with their wastewater plants and some other things uh, down in Florida and elsewhere. So we're really recruiting Veterans were phenomenal because they already one, they already have a security clearance. Two, they have an aptitude to learn. Uh, and three, there's a, just under a quarter million of them every year that that transition from active service to becoming veterans. So why not allow them to go into a great uh, profession in cybersecurity and give them a pathway to succeed? Uh, and you know why that's important, Brian. You know when we think about the majority of the critical infrastructure in America is owned by the private sector uh, and we need to have these public private partnerships you know through things like task force cyber through what's called the u.s cyberspace Slurium commission and others 
to really move the needle and recruit the next generation of great young Americans to get involved in cybersecurity and stand watch to protect our companies and our country. I think, I mean, this, first of all, this is a, an incredible initiative. I think it absolutely speaks to one of the big trends that's that's happening within the the technology space is kind of the upskilling or reskilling of employees and 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 people that that perhaps have been doing other jobs, but as technology evolves, they can evolve as well. And as you've been working on this program, and because I'm guessing there's people out there listening, perhaps you're a veteran and perhaps you're wondering, hey, how can I get involved with something like this? But then they think and say, but cybersecurity seems like a, a stretch too far, right? And and perhaps that it, it can be intimidating or there can be some type of uh, inhibitor there. What are what are you seeing as you've been working with this program um, that might assuage some of those challenges? One, you know, you don't need a college degree necessarily. We have great partnerships with community colleges or two-year colleges that are, you know, educating and certifying these great next generation of cyber professionals. Uh, so there's a path to success and there's past, you know, for veterans through SkillBridge and others that they can do it as well. So to me, uh, it is not that hard to break into if as long as you're willing to put your shoulder into it uh, and work at it. And that's that's how it should is how it is and how it should be with other professions as well. But cybersecurity is definitely one of the fastest growing professions in America. You make a ton of money. It's a family sustaining wage and it's growing uh, and it's going to continue to grow for decades to come. When I think a lot of a lot of people, and I'm sure you can can attest to this, a lot of people that, that join the military join for similar reasons that you did. They want to serve their country, and this is another way for them getting out of the military to serve your country. Because, like I said, it, it is a national security issue. You talked about protecting critical infrastructure, which is certainly important. I think is going to be. Um, it, I mean, I don't want to even say the next one of the next battlegrounds. It already is a battleground because we saw some of the the hacking that's happened. So this gives them an opportunity to really connect with their own personal mission while also, as you mentioned, making a really good salary um, and advancing their skill set, which is incredible. Yeah. And I think it goes along that people want to have a purpose-driven life, Brian. So, you know, when you're a cybersecurity professional, you understand you're protecting the, the secrets, you're protecting the data of your coworkers, of your clients, uh, of your, of your company. And so it's a pretty awesome responsibility. So, you know, living with a purpose, having a job that, that you know, in a lot of cases, Brian, and I'm not saying this lightly, is life or death. I mean, people don't realize cybersecurity literally is there are people that are dying from cyber attacks uh, in the world. Uh, people who, you know, when cyber uh, thieves stole ransomware and shut down a hospital, uh, people die from that. Uh, when you're shutting down power plants, when you're shutting down water treatment facilities, when you're doing other things, I mean, it really... Uh, puts innocent Americans and innocent people in harm's way. So it's a pretty awesome job, pretty awesome responsibility. But it goes back to what you and I talked about, about you know trying to find your purpose, living a purpose-driven life, having what the Bible says, having a servant's heart to give back and to make a difference in this community and in our world. Patrick, I, I can't thank you enough for being on here. Like I, like I mentioned at the very top of the show, I think um, you have such a diverse background. You've done so many things across your career, and it's been a lot of fun to kind of traverse some of those things. And, and we haven't even touched on everything. Um, 
but really appreciate the time. And any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners before you go? Yeah, Brian, you know, I would like, like I said, from the jump, when we, when I saw you at the conference, man, I want to have a relationship with you and your listeners. They could follow me on social media. I'm at Patrick Murphy, PA or, or LinkedIn, uh, Patrick J. Murphy. Uh, and my website's patrickjmurphy.com. Uh, you know, I give speeches to companies and other things too, but you know, I'm here to help people. So if I could help you, your listeners, uh, out there and, and talking about what it is to live a purpose-driven life, uh, the life hacks about how to be hungry and humble, you know, how to get off the mat, you know, when you fall down, uh, those are things I'm passionate about. And it's about making a difference, uh, in people's lives and in our, in our country during this defining moment in our nation's history. So Brian, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, brother. And we started the show talking about that that service thread that's gone through your your life and your career, and and obviously that just personifies that and looking to engage and give back. So um, I think that's fantastic. And again, really appreciate the time. And, and I hope the listeners really um, in, engage with some of the things that we're talking about. I know I did. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.